You know, Chris said something when he was up here. He said, this moment is anointed by God. That is a, a phrase that between the ages of 15 and 30 would have just flown over my head and meant nothing to me. I'm so glad that the Lord has opened me up to help me understand the truth of his sovereignty. Basically what that means is saying this moment has been anointed by God is that God planned for you to be here at this moment. Everything in our life, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything works out towards his perfect plans. And for those who believe in him can find comfort in knowing that the end result um, will be good and beautiful. So if you are here, you should not take that lightly. You are not here because you chose to be here. You might think so, you know, I'm going to go to church today, but the reality of it is, is the Lord wants you here at this moment, and that's why you're here. And if this is all new to you, I would encourage you to say a silent prayer in your head. Ask the Lord to reveal his truths to you, and I promise he will. <laughs> and, and, and I know... Um, from 30 years of, of failed experience. Prior to the birth of our seventh child, who we fondly call Seven, <laughs> I took my wife Fleur away on a baby moon. Like a honeymoon, but rather than celebrating our marriage, we were celebrating the anticipation of baby miracle surprise. This was a little over four years ago. I got a really good deal on a nice room in Santa Paula at a place called the Glen Tavern Inn. In fact, I wondered why I got such a great deal until that is a cashier at a local store told Fleur that the hotel was haunted. <laughs> that years ago, the Glen Tavern Inn was a brothel and a speakeasy and that a lot of bad things had happened there, including two murders. Well, I quickly went online and did some research, and sure enough, the place has quite a history. Most notably, its connection to the St. Francis Dam disaster. St. Francis Dam was located here in Santa Clarita, in San Francisco Canyon, exactly 18.8 miles northwest of our church. The dam was built by William Mulholland, Mulholland, the one man solely in charge, Mulholland was nearly a mythological figure at the time. Mulholland spurred Los Angeles growth by the creation of the LA Aqueduct. One newspaper article said Mulholland gave water to Los Angeles. Another said that he delivered water to a parched and thirsty land. Arguably, Mulholland was responsible for transforming Los Angeles into one of the most important cities in the United States and the world because of water. Because of Mulholland's reputation, he was allowed to build the dam with little supervision. He used city employees. He didn't use consulting engineers. He didn't solicit peer review on anything he did. According to one article I read, money drove Mulholland's thinking. Water was... Los Angeles lifeblood. 
The dam held approximately 12.5 billion gallons of water. That is, until March 12, 1928. At three minutes before midnight, the dam catastrophically failed. 12.5 billions of water surged down San Francisco Canyon. A 10-story high wall of water traveling 18 miles an hour destroyed everything in its path. It flooded modern-day Santa Clarita before flooding Piru, Fillmore, Santa Paula, Satakoy, and then pouring its victims into the Pacific Ocean in Ventura. Following the dam break, 450 lives were lost. Bodies were recovered as far as the Mexican border after violently being poured into the ocean. 200 of the 450 deaths occurred in Santa Paula, hence the connection to the so-called haunted hotel where Fleur and I baby mooned. Bodies were actually stored in the basement of the Glen Tavern Inn. Those who had their homes destroyed had to live in tents. Just five days before the dam collapsed, the dam had reached full capacity. Mulholland declared it safe. But on the day the dam collapsed, the dam keeper had spotted several leaks. Mulholland returned to the dam and again declared it safe. Ten hours later, the dam broke. The failure of the St. Francis Dam is the deadliest man-made disaster in the 20th century and remains the second greatest loss of life in California history. According to courthousenews.com, it was Mulholland's venerated status in LA that sowed the seeds for disaster. Not only did the dam lack integrity of wise counsel, but Mulholland unknowingly built his dam on an ancient bedrock landslide. His hope was laid on a foundation of sinking sand. Overnight, William Mulholland went from being the most revered and powerful man in Los Angeles to people calling for his public execution. While on the witness stand being questioned about the disaster, he said, if there, if there was an error in human judgment, I was the human. We are all flawed because we are human. And no amount of power or money or God-given ability in the absence of God will prevent any of us from making errors in judgment. Which is why God condescended to deliver himself and his words to not only save us from ourselves, but also to help us practice good judgment so we can negotiate and navigate our broken world and strive to be the lights in the darkness he declares believers to be. Please open up your Bibles to Matthew 7, 24. And read along with me verses 24 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'd be happy to, to bring you one. Reading verses 24 through 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them 
may be compared to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And yet, it did not fall because it had been laid on a foundation of rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell. And great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. For many months now, we have been studying the greatest speech ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, or as Colossians 1.15 calls him, the image of the invisible God, God himself in the form of man, tells us exactly how to live as those who claim him as their Lord and Savior. Today we are concluding our study of his speech. The conclusion of any speech is crucial. If a speaker properly does their job, the words should inspire two responses from a listening audience. One, a good conclusion must cause the audience to think about what has been spoken. And two, a good conclusion must be memorable. Jesus does this masterfully because he is the author of life. In his conclusion, Jesus tells us there are only two ways to respond to his speech. Wisdom or foolishness. That is, to act on the wisdom of his words or not to act on the wisdom of his words. This morning, we'll first celebrate the wisdom of hearing and acting on the words of Jesus. Then we'll consider the foolishness of hearing his words, but not acting on them. And third, we'll remember the authority of the speaker. But before we go any further, let's ask Jesus to bless our time together in his words. Please bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, you are the enmity God promised in Genesis after the fall of man. You are the savior described by Isaiah to come from the line of Abraham and David. You are the seed of a woman born by immaculate conception by the Holy Spirit. You are the Emmanuel, delivered just as foretold in the Old Testament and brought to life in the New Testament, beginning in Matthew, where we are currently studying. Where also you, Lord, early on, give us very specific words for honoring you with wise living. Your words that promise blessings for those who act on them, that is, those who follow the direction for faithful living as defined and exemplified by you, the Great Shepherd. Lord Jesus, open our hearts and our minds to your words 
so that we can truly be the salt and the light that you declare us to be as your children. We praise you for this honor. We thank you for this honor. And we petition you for this honor. Please bless our time in your word. It's in your name alone, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Please read again with me. Matthew 7, 24 through 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And yet it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Therefore, our passage today begins with the word, therefore. Therefore is a powerful word when used properly. It's a conjunctive adverb and can be used to show cause and effect or the consequence or result of something. So why does Jesus start the conclusion of his speech with the word, therefore? Because after hearing his words, you cannot not respond. And your response is either to hear him, listen to him, and follow him, or to hear him and not listen. Prior to the word, therefore, Jesus has given us a roadmap for living our faith. I recently shared with my son that just like a successful athlete follows the lead of their coach, or a successful student follows the lead of their teacher, or a successful employee follows the lead of their boss, a real Christian follows the lead of their Lord. And this is not about legalism or following rules. Our behavior does not get us to heaven. But as Titus 3, 4 through 8 emphasizes, a life led by Christ serves as a testimony to the world of a life transformed by Christ. Listen to what Titus says. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these words, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Good deeds are good and profitable for men because they reflect Christ. They point to Christ. Notice it does not say these things are good and profitable for the individual who practices them, but rather for men, for others. The target of our good deeds is not heaven or to build on our own successes, But the target of our good deeds must be others and for the glory of Christ, not ourselves. Most of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is about the pursuit and maintenance of peace and grace with others 
empowered by reverence and submission to the Lord we claim. And it's not just direction from God, but also direction from a man who has also lived what he is preaching. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is the greatest example of a credible speaker. He practices what he preaches. Let's review his speech and consider why Jesus emphasized everything with the word, therefore. Beginning in Matthew 5, Jesus starts his speech with the Beatitudes. Jesus lists blessings that result and reflect a heart transformed by God. Attitudes that reflect receiving his invitation into his heavenly kingdom. The be in the word Beatitudes emphasizes that we are to be like Christ. With the attitudes that he has both spoken to us and modeled for us with his actions, with his life. And Christ says that acting on his words equals blessings. Blessings not as a result of work, but as a result of his living, breathed out words, transforming lives from the inside out. Later in chapter 5, Christ declares that believers are salt and light. Salt prevents decay and promotes permanence. Christ declares that his disciples are salt of the earth. Not should be, are. God ordained salt, empowered by Christ to deliver lasting flavor to life, to confront the decay of the world. And followers of Christ must also be careful not to sacrifice godly influence by compromising with the world around us. Everybody look up. We're to be leaders, not followers. Which is also why Jesus says we are to be lights in a dark world. Just as John 8:12 says that he is, because light is life. Without natural light, nothing would exist. Light represents the beginning of life on our planet. And Christ represents the beginning of life eternal. People must see the light of Christ in those who claim to follow him. In Matthew 5, 21 through 48, Jesus tells us how to relate to others. Admonishing us to seek peace in all, not some, all situations. And to control our mouths. And Christ, led by example, is the ultimate peacekeeper. By controlling his mouth in tough situations while living as a man, by leaning on and speaking scripture for strength. In Matthew 6, 6-4, Jesus tells us to righteously practice giving. That is, to keep our giving between us and God. And to do it unconditionally. Just as Christ, the credible speaker, gives to us unconditionally. In Matthew 6, 5 through 15, Jesus gives us clear direction for prayer, reminding us that prayer is worship. In Matthew 6, 16 through 20, Jesus tells us how to fast and reminds us that fasting is something that believers do do. In Matthew 6, 20 through 24, Jesus tells us where we are to focus our attention. Our focus is not in this world, 
but eternity. Just as Christ demonstrated when he rejected all that the world has to offer when the devil was taunting him. In Matthew 6, 25 through 30, Jesus gives us the cure for anxiety, reminding us that the more we place our faith in him and his words, the more our faith grows and our anxiety diminishes. In Matthew 6, 31 through 34, Jesus reminds us that he is the one leading us. Jesus is God, but he also lived as a man. So not only do we want to obey him first in all things, but following his lead as a man who has lived as we live, who also happens to be the author of life, is the wisest thing any of us could ever do. Moving on to the beginning of our current and final chapter with Jesus' speech. Chapter 7, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus commands us to practice judgment with great discernment. Jesus gives us very strict warnings to practice good judgment, to make wise judgment calls regarding ourselves and the people we interact with so that we remain consistent with our own words and actions. This is a command not to assume the role of judge as it pertains to the flaws in the people around us. And a warning to look in the mirror and first reflect on our own brokenness before calling out the brokenness of others. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Because the same standard we direct at others, the Lord will direct right back at us. Moving on in chapter 7, Jesus tells us in verse 6 to discern how we use his words and in self-preservation to be careful not to throw our pearls before swine. In Matthew 7, 7 through 12, Jesus gives us more instruction about prayer with a blessed invitation to ask, seek, and knock. Punctuated with the golden rule. In everything, therefore, Treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. There is that word therefore again. And notice what it's emphasizing for us. The treatment of others is our truest testimony of the Lord we claim to follow. In Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Jesus tells us that there are just two gates One is narrow, one is broad. The broad gate leads to destruction. The narrow gate leads to life. The broad gate is the the world. The narrow gate is Christ. In Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus warns us about false prophets, calling them ravenous wolves. And he gives us three characteristics to be aware of. False prophets deny the sole deity of Christ. False prophets deny doctrinal truth. False prophets do not bear fruit consistent with Christ. These statements should also serve as a litmus test for anyone who claims Christ. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, as we learned last week, Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a tough bit of scripture to digest. 
And I'm thankful for the way Matt presented it last week. In these verses, Jesus calls out those who think their works attached to his name in themselves mean something. This made me think of earlier in Matthew, chapter 3, 7 through 8, when John the Baptist called the Pharisees and Sadducees, wanting to get their baptism cards stamped, a brood of vipers, because their claim to Christ was superficial. There was no repentance or fruit. They just wanted what they thought was a good bath that would ensure them good standing in the eyes of God. This also makes me think of myself and others in my youth who took every opportunity to ask Jesus into our hearts because the gospel was presented as a quick and easy membership into heaven to be claimed with a formulaic prayer. And while we do know because of miraculous stories like the thief on the cross, true salvation is a simple process. But it's on God's terms, not ours. It's something to be simply claimed, not as a get-out-of-jail-free pass. True salvation is a transformative work done by the grace of God. And when it happens, a person cannot help but be changed into a person who, according to Jesus, in Matthew 7, 2, does the will of the Father. Which John 40 says, John 6, 40 says, is to behold and believe in his Son. Note, behold means to look to, to observe. Why would someone who claims Christ as Lord look to him and observe him so that we can learn how to live not unlike the same way we behold coaches, teachers, bosses, and most importantly, parents. But when we behold the direction of Jesus, unlike others in our lives giving us direction, acting on his words is not just the result of following direction but a heart that is changing. And that's because his words are transformative. Just as he claims them to be in our scripture for today, looking again at Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Notice the word mine. Jesus is claiming rightful ownership as God, as the one who has the ability to give life-altering direction with his spoken words. And furthermore, he is declaring that acting on his spoken words produces wisdom built on the rock. That is wisdom built on him. And this is to be taken very seriously. Look what Jesus says in Luke 6, 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I'm going to repeat that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say to do? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man who built his house, who dug deep, and laid a foundation on the rock. 
And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Acting on the wisdom of Christ's words delivered in the Sermon on the Mount, according to Christ, is wise and produces a foundation of rock, a foundation in Christ. Now let's consider the alternative. Looking to Matthew 7, verses 26 through 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Last week before church, I took a look, a look at a news site on the internet. There was a picture of a really handsome man with a caption reading, CEO jumps to his death. The article talked about how not only his company's financial challenges were affecting his life, but also how impressive the building he jumped from was. How spacious the building and the beautiful 60th floor apartment he jumped from were. And ironically, within the same frame of news stories, lead stories, was an article of a shirtless man who had abs of steel. The article was titled, The Latest CEO Flex is to Have Washboard Abs. The article detailed how important physical appearance is becoming to CEOs. I could not help but think about how both articles reflected the superficial foundations for contentment many of us, myself included, chase after. The articles also reminded me that the only secure foundation for life is Christ. Not a fancy penthouse or washboard abs. Not acting on the words of Christ delivered in his Sermon on the Mount, according to Christ, is foolish. It produces a foundation of sand. These are the concluding words of Jesus' speech. For anyone hears his final words, it should be impossible not to, one, think about his words, and two, remember them. To put it as simply as Jesus does, therefore, doing what he says is wise, and not doing what he says is foolish. End of speech. But this isn't the end of the chapter. There are still two, chap two verses left, and they remind us of the authority of exactly who is speaking. Looking to verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them not like the scribes, but as one having authority. Christ did not speak with authority like scribes, scholars, teachers, or copiers of God's word. 
but rather Jesus spoke as one having authority. He spoke as the, capital T, authority. Capital T for the. These words echo Christ's use of the phrase, words of mine. His words, because he is God. Just as John 1 tells us, Jesus is the embodiment of the word of God. The word of God in flesh. And this truth is made visual for us in Revelation 19.13, stating, He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is the word of God. This, of course, being a reference to his sacrifice on the cross for all who believe his words. Right now, I would like to connect some dots that got us to this moment in scripture. And what I mean by connect dots is, first and foremost, this huge book we've got here has one theme, one standout theme, and that is Christ. And everywhere in this book points back to Christ. But the only way we know that is by opening it and connecting the dots. So right now, if you've got your Bible with you, I would like you to get ready to open it with me. And if you're somebody who likes to highlight in your scripture, do that. So you will always have a little roadmap pointing to Christ from start to finish. How we arrive at this portion in scripture where not only does Christ claim authorship and direction for living with his Sermon on the Mount, but also the crowds, the people, the audience saw him not as a religious authority, but as the authority. Please turn with me right now to Genesis 3.15, all the way at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis 3.15. Look what Genesis 3.15 says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Enmity is hatred and hostility. God, through a woman, would turn hearts against the devil. In particular, through a single seed pointing to a single offspring. This is the first promise of the Redeemer, Jesus, who would rescue man. And also interesting to note here, God's word says that this redemption will come from her seed. Placing attention here on the word her. Reproduction between humans requires the seed of a man. We don't refer to women as having seeds. But we also know from scripture that Jesus was not born of a man, but by the Holy Spirit. So it makes sense that Genesis refers to the Redeemer who would save the world as coming from her seed. Now please turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Here in chapter 22 we learn that Abraham was so faithful to God that he was willing to sacrifice his own son, which of course God did not have him do and would not have him do. 
But as a result of his faithfulness, look at what verse 18 says. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So we now know from Genesis 3, the Messiah would be born of a woman by the Holy Spirit and not man. But this verse also makes it clear the Messiah will be related to a man named Abraham. Now please turn with me to Isaiah 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Reading verses 6 through 7 in Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So now we know that the eternal Savior will come in the form of a child and through the line of both Abraham and David. Now please turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 one of the most amazing places in all of scripture, Isaiah 53, reading verses one through 10. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he claimed, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that has led to the slaughter. And like sheep that are silent before their shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with a wicked man, wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. So, we know the one who will save us 
That is, justify us and make us right in the eyes of God by taking on our sins upon himself will only be able to do so because of his righteousness and willingness in accordance with God's planning. This is the story of the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah. The author of the speech that we've been studying today. I wish we had more time to connect more of the infinite dots in the Old Testament, but we don't. But I can tell you where they all end up at. Christ. So now please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. The book we're currently in. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Look at how Matthew 1.1 begins. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, or David, and the son of Abraham. Just as prophesied in the Old Testament, Jesus came from the, from the line of David and Abraham. But how could this be? If Jesus was to come from the seed of a woman? Well, look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, a descendant of David and Abraham, was the father by marriage of Jesus. Now look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. This is the one who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And he is the one telling us to act on his words, and that this is to practice wisdom. But this Messiah, this God, tells us to not act on his words equals foolishness. And this, again, from the ultimate authority, God. Either you believe the authority of the speaker or you do not. So I ask you, do you believe his words enough to act on them? And will you pray for his help and his wisdom to do so? Today, leftover pieces of the St. Francis Dam remind us how flawed the judgment of man can be in the absence of humble, Christ-like Wisdom. The book of Proverbs says that wisdom cries out from the streets. But the book of Ecclesiastes, we studied a few months ago, reminds us that wisdom in the absence of God is prone to poor judgment. The only way we can remember God consistently is to respond to the authority of Christ in all circumstances. And when we do this, this testifies to a life transformed by him. 
because of his wisdom, not our own, and all for his glory. Please bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, your words represent the ultimate authority because you are God. I pray that if there's anyone here right now who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that you would do the work that only you can. Your words say all we need to do is acknowledge to you that we are indeed a sinner, that is a flawed individual prone to making mistakes, and that believing that you, Jesus, God, gave up yourself on the cross for us, died and rose out of that grave three days later after conquering death, that you will forgive any one of their sins who ask you to. You will not only forgive us, but your Holy Spirit, your promise, penetrates and changes hearts and helps us to mature in ways that reflect your grace because you are the only door to peace in this life and the hope of eternal life in the next. And while our life does not become perfect overnight, we are blessed with confidence, assurance, and hope that you, Lord, the good shepherd, will never fail us or let us go. And for those of us here that do know you as Lord, please give us the ability to act on your words more so every day so that the foundation of rock that is you will be what defines the body here at Church of the Canyons. In your name, Jesus, we pray.